Amen. And we are going to be speaking about the ascension tonight, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I've entitled it The Ascension of Christ and Its Implications. So let's look to the Lord in prayer one more time, and then we'll preach. Our Father, we look to you now. Your word is truth. You've inspired your word, Father, and your spirit comes and applies it to our hearts, and we pray that you would do that tonight. We pray that you'd bless the preacher. We pray that you'd bless every hearer. And, Lord, if there be any needs that can be met through this message, Father, we know your spirit knows them. We pray that he would apply it as necessary. And we would give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And the ascension of Christ is an essential doctrine and a vital truth. And understanding it keeps us from many errors. It's something that's been confessed by the church for Well, centuries, literally. The Apostles' Creed says this, after he's talking about his incarnation, talking about his death. It says, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven. And then it goes on to say he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We know in Reformed theology, we divide the the work of Christ, the coming, becoming man, into two parts his humiliation, and his exaltation. And the Baptist Catechism says in question 30, wherein consists Christ's humiliation, and many of you probably know the answer, Christ's humiliation consists in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And then it follows right up with question 31. Wherein consists Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and coming to judge the world at the last day. Now, if you turn to Luke 24, we just had that read in your hearing. But Luke 24, we'd like to start there. Uh, we see his ascension given to us here in Luke 24. Just a quote from R.C. Sproul. Sproul said this about uh, the ascension. The significance of the ascension is often overlooked in the modern church. We have special celebrations and holidays to commemorate the birth, and it says Christmas, the death, Good Friday, and the resurrection, Easter of Christ. Most churches, however, make little or no mention of the ascension. And then he makes this point. However, the ascension is a redemptive event of profound importance. It marks the moment of Christ's highest point of exaltation prior to his return. It is in the ascension that Christ entered into his glory. And so we see that here in the scriptures. Now, we're not going to, we had to read some context to get there, but I'd just like you to start in verse 49, and we'll make some notes here. From verse 49. Verse 49 says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power on high. Now, if we went to Matthew's gospel, we really wouldn't see an account of the ascension. If we went to John's gospel, we'd see the ascension alluded to many, many times, but again, no explicit. Um, uh, record of the ascension. Mark's gospel does have it in the disputed ending, which is in 
verse 19, which reads, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. But uh, here, you know, we, we have the ascension given to us in Luke's gospel and then in his second part when he writes the book of Acts. But it's kind of interesting to think that there's a mysterious 40 days between Christ's resurrection and his ascension that we really just don't know a lot about. Most of the material we have is found in John chapter 20 and John chapter 21. And um, sometimes it's a little mysterious, sometimes a little puzzling how it all comes down. And whenever you have something like that, uh, we know that the cults are going to play up big on something like that and, and come up with their own theories, their own ideas. Uh, that's nothing new. Um, the Gnostics of the second and third century were doing that very same thing, trying to speculate as to what was going on there. Well, we are looking at the ascension, and you notice in verse 49 he tells them, Terry in Jerusalem. Now, when you put all the accounts together, you see that um, John's gospel tells us that Peter and the apostles go up into Galilee. It's often assumed that um, they did so sinfully and disobediently, but I don't think so, because um, Christ told Mary in Matthew 28.10 uh, that uh, his disciples should go back to Galilee. They'd see him there, and that's exactly what did happen. And we have that account in John. These words that we just read here in Luke, uh, they actually take us right to the ascension. They're back in Jerusalem. And now they're to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now while it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried into heaven. And um, this is basically where Luke decides to end his gospel. Much has been said of all that Jesus began to do and teach. It's the end of an era. And it's a fitting end to the gospel account. And then he goes on and summarizes what we actually see in the book of Acts. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. And we can see how much the relationship had changed and how it's been changed for all believers from, from that day, from the days that he walked the earth and the way they formally interacted with him. Uh, they could no longer see him, but they weren't sad. Remember in the upper room? They were sad. They were grief-stricken. I'm going to go away. And, and their hearts were broken. Now they were joyful. Now they were worshipers. And they no longer doubted who he was. They knew he was the one who had been sent by the Father. He was one with the Father, worthy to be worshipped, just as they worshipped the Father. Well, you read in the Gospels, occasionally uh, they would worship him while he was here on earth. That would happen. But this begins the cycle for every true Christian that is, and has followed ever since, that we glorify God and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostles became worshipers and remained worshipers. And, um, well, turn to Acts 1. We'll see the rest of the story there. You know it. I don't have to tell you that, but uh, Acts chapter 1 is where we have the fleshed-out account. It's almost like Luke was done, and uh, then, oh, okay, here's book 2. Here it comes, you know. 
Acts chapter 1, and just first three verses, just by way of introduction. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, so there's the ascension right there, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then let's just skip to verse 8, because we are talking about the ascension tonight. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud, and received, out, or sorry, taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So there's the more full account of the ascension. And uh, a few observations you can make. You can think about angels. You can think about angels. And, and we know that angels were there when he was born into the world. And then angels were there when he rose from the dead. And then here we see angels again as he ascends up into heaven. And just some observations. First thing I would just say, according to verse number 8, uh, we can see that the Great Commission is linked to the ascension of Christ. Power would come from the Holy Spirit. The promised paraclete and the good news would extend to the end of the earth. And uh, it's the commentator O'Brien that makes the observation that the missionary mandate would rest not just on the mandate or command itself, but on Christ's living presence in heaven. And then another note that you can see is that a cloud received him out of their sight. And it was no ordinary cloud. I don't believe it was. Uh, the cloud received him or took him, as it says. He was taken up. And uh, we know in the Old Testament that uh, oftentimes a cloud is a manifestation of the presence of God. And you see that at the end of Exodus, the last two verses of Exodus um, talk about the cloud and the tabernacle. And then we can even come into the New Testament and see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's a cloud again. You know, well, a cloud received him out of his sight, the presence of God, I believe. And it was a bodily ascension. It was a bodily resurrection, and it was a bodily ascension. He didn't discard his body. And uh, no doubt, it was an awesome sight. And uh, no wonder they just kept staring and looking, you know. Here he ascends in a bodily fashion. He ascends as a man. The God-man takes his humanity with him to heaven. And the God-man retains his humanity for all eternity. And we can say that a man sits on the throne of the universe, you know. And a man will sit on the throne of the universe for all eternity. So we come to the doctrine of the ascension, the doctrine itself. 
And there, there's a lot of ways we could go into that, but as I was studying, well, I found I wasn't going to be able to do better than the Heidelberg Catechism, which speaks to this issue in four questions and does a remarkable job. Uh, question 46 really kind of echoes our, or actually our, our catechism is very similar uh, to the Heidelberg, so I won't read that one. I already read about Christ's exaltation and his ascension. But um, verse 47 of the Heidelberg asks, But isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? And the answer comes back, Christ is truly human and truly God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth. But in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is not absent from us for a moment. And it's followed up by question 48. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? They go, certainly not. <laughs> you know, certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it's evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity he's taken on, but at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. In other words, Christ is divine and human. A human being, by definition, can only be in one place at one time. And Jesus is not with us today as he was with his disciples before the ascension. However, because he's divine, we know that he's omnipresent. And he's lost nothing. But his body is in heaven. And it's not present everywhere. And this, you just think about the implications of that for the Lord's Supper. And it's something that a lot of blood has been shed over, literally, over the years. And, of course, the Roman Catholic doctrine... And then different, admittedly different, but still the Lutheran doctrine too. But um, as we have our Reformed Baptist doctrine of the Lord's Supper, we can turn right to our confession, chapter 30, paragraph 7, and see an excellent, excellent description of the Lord's Supper. We are sometimes accused by our friends of being dead memorialists. And... Um, that, I believe, is a false charge or should be a false charge, according to our confession, chapter 30, paragraph 7. But I've also found that um, quoting 37 to our Lutheran friends doesn't really impress them all that much. <laughs> so there you go. Well, one more point to make um, in the Heidelberg, question 49. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? And their catechism makes three points. First, he pleads our cause in heaven in the presence of the Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ our head will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. And then they have some scripture proofs for that that are, that are worth looking at and reminding ourselves of. John 14.2 in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And um, we can see that uh, that's just a tremendous promise. That's the beginning of the things that the disciples didn't understand then, but would come to understand greatly. And then his second coming is addressed in the, in the very next verse, um, 14.3. And if I go, and certainly that's not 
an if of doubt. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And the same truth that we see in Acts 1.11 that we just read a moment ago. But back to the Catechism one more time, and, and the last time, uh, it gave a first, gave a second. Here's a third reason. Third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee. By the Spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives not earthly things, but the things that are above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. And obviously, Colossians 3.1 is where they're going with that. Well, that's the doctrine, and it's well said, I think, in the Heidelberg there. There's also a scriptural confession, or possibly you could call it an early hymn in the scriptures themselves, in 1 Timothy 3.16. And um, let me just say this. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to quote it in a moment, but 1 Timothy 3.16, if it is an early hymn, and, and many commentators and scholars believe that it is, it proves a point that it is important what we sing. Um, I believe, and I know so many of you do too, that much of the error that creeps into churches comes from songs that present partial truths or less than the truth or sometimes outright error. And people sing those songs. They sing them with all of their heart. And they're actually doing themselves doctrinal harm instead of full-orbed, good, solid psalms and hymns. We learn much by what we sing. And it's very possible that Paul is quoting part of an early hymn. We could call it even a creedal hymn here in 1 Timothy 3.16. And uh, if that be the case, first century, it would, be, it would make all the sense in the world that first century believers would have things like this to to remind themselves of the great truths of the faith. And there's a few of them like this in Scripture, but Paul says here, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And once again, we see the importance of the ascension. Now, now turn to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4 is pretty familiar territory for most of us. Just like to make a couple observations from there. Ephesians chapter 4, we could call this implications of the ascension for the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 8. Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And that's part of the prophecy of of Psalm 68, 18. So we see that uh, prophecy being quoted. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we could go on, but the point I wanted to make here 
is that uh, basically all ministerial gifts are the fruit of Christ going up to heaven. And I thought about that when I thought about um, preaching here tonight. This is a room that has a collection of, of God's gifts, men that have been called to the ministry and uh, preach and teach and edify the body of Christ. It's our responsibility to minister to those entrusted to us, to equip them, to be diligent in our small part of the kingdom. And it's not exactly the same as the Old Testament, is it? Born into the priesthood in the Old Testament. Or or prophets would arise from time to time. But what's the normative way in the New Testament? Elders, pastors, teachers, you know? Fellow Christians, members of churches with the people that we minister with. Called of God, yes. But the elders who are among you, I exhort. And the Apostle Peter says, myself being a fellow elder. Apostle calls himself fellow elder. That's humility when you come right to it. And we need to have that spirit of humility as we minister to our people. That we're fellow Christians with them. And may God help us that way. But the other side of the coin, ministerial gifts and ministers are the fruit of Christ's going up into heaven. And that brings us to another place. I, I checked this one out with my friend Jeff Oliver because I wanted to be right. <laughs> you know, I thought I was right, but I wanted to make sure. And... Um, Heaven's a place. It's a place. Christ descended and ascended. And I got a hold of a work by an old Puritan. It was on, it's on the Internet, so it's easy to get. Um, Christopher Love. Didn't know anything about him before I actually got it, but I got it because he had five sermons on the Ascension. And that seemed to me rather unusual. <laughs> you know, haven't seen it. Haven't heard a lot of sermons on the Ascension. So five sermons on the Ascension. I thought I'd glean from that, and I did. Profitable things. The Puritan Christopher Love makes this point, and he cites Enoch and Elijah's examples, and he actually says in his work, Christ's Ascension and Second Coming from Heaven, that there are now three bodies in heaven, Christ, Enoch, and Elijah. And I pondered that one a lot, and I find it somewhat baffling, and some of you probably understand this better than I, but Christopher Love goes on to make four solid points that I think are are well worth thinking about when we contemplate this. The fact that heaven is a place, but he notes that there's four differences, at least four key differences between Enoch, who of course was translated, and Elijah went up in a whirlwind, and then Christ who ascended. He says, Enoch and Elijah went to heaven but they did not die and rise from the dead and ascend. Solid point. Enoch and Elijah went to heaven, but they didn't ascend to heaven by their own strength, but by the power of God. And then, probably the best point of all, we receive no benefit by Enoch and Elijah going to heaven, nor does any merit accrue to us by these two great men being in heaven, But we'll leave that to Dr. Malone tomorrow to 
to talk more about that. So, very good. And while both Enoch and Elijah went to heaven, last point, neither could give the spirit, which Christ did, and then he gave gifts unto men. And so, you know, amen. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And we know that, and, and we talk about that a lot in our churches, and we should. And William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Philippians 2, just says this, just talking about him being a king. As king, having by his death, resurrection, and ascension, achieved and displayed his triumph over his enemies, he now holds his, in his hands the reins of the universe and rules all things in the interest of his church. Turn to Hebrews, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 4 first. There's a lot we could say in Hebrews. I'm preaching through the book of Hebrews in my own church. I told my church that we'd take about six months to preach through Hebrews. Well, that was, oh well. They forgave me. <laughs> they forgave me for that. We're about ready to start chapter 7, though, so, you know, and... It's been six months. <laughs> so that's pretty fast, really. John Owen. I got Owen seven volumes. But I haven't read them all. I'll admit that. <laughs> okay. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. There's many references to the ascension in the book of Hebrews. And, of course, it's almost always linked to a session also. Um, Hebrews 4, 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, note, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, or your Bible might say profession there. And our great high priest has done something that no Aaronic priest could ever do. And we see this in Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, uh, who has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus is our hope. And we have an anchor for the soul. And an anchor is for safety, and an anchor is for stability. And he's our forerunner. He's gone before us. Gone to the holy place, made with our hands. And John the Baptist was a forerunner, but this is really the only place where this particular Greek word for forerunner is used in the New Testament. Christ has gone before us, and he brings us with him. Well, a lot more we could say there, but uh, we're talking about the ascension. So let me just make four applications that flow from Christ's ascension. But they're kind of long applications, so... Don't have too much hope here. Okay, Four applications that flow from Christ's ascension. Christ's ascension is a great encouragement as we go through life and as we come to the end of our life. It's a great encouragement as we go through life and as we come to the end of our life. Many of you have had the same experiences that I've had of, of being there when saints have gone into the presence of the Lord. And maybe you've been there when, when someone has passed away. And we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But we're not going to be absent from the body for all eternity. There'll be a day 
when he returns bodily and our bodies will be raised. And Christ's ascension assures us that he will return bodily just as he ascended bodily. It's the testimony of the angels himself. He'll come in like manner as you've seen him go. Don't just stand there staring. He'll return. And he'll return in the same way. You know, well, I'll wait for a second on that. It'll be a bodily return. And we need to hold to that truth. It's an important truth. It's one that the church has confessed from early the earliest days, too. And there's an error out there, and maybe you've run into it. Maybe they've run into you, into your churches. Um, um, full full preterism or hyper-preterism, resurrection's already passed, all that. You know, be aware of that. It's dangerous doctrine, and it's something that needs to be watched very, very carefully, and it certainly goes against our confession and goes against biblical truth. You know. So, first thing, Christ's ascension is a great encouragement to us as we go through this life and as we come to the end of our life. Second thing, we'd say, Christ's ascension assures us that he's currently ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And uh, there's a whole lot more going on here than just beam me up, Scotty. You know, that's not what it is at all. You know, it wasn't just a cool and impressive way to leave. He's been exalted, he's been glorified, and he's been enthroned. In the ancient world, when a king wanted to honor someone, he would uh, have them sit at his right hand. And uh, that's my right hand. <laughs> Showed favor and power. These are implications that we can draw from Christ's ascension. And he is sitting at the right hand of God. He has a permanent place in heaven. He was humbled as he came to this earth, but he'll never be humbled again. And he's not waiting to become king. It's a great error in our day. Many good men hold to it. But he's not waiting to become king. He was plainly declared to be king by his ascension and is taking his rightful place. He is king of kings and lord of lords for all eternity. And his work of redemption is complete. He has risen, he's ascended, and he's seated. And uh, we'll wait for that too. You know? And third thing we can say is Christ's ascension is a great blessing, and it includes a great mystery. It's better for us that he has gone away. Now, the disciples had a very hard time believing that when they were in the upper room. But he told them that in John 16, 7. It's to their advantage that he go away. It's to our advantage that he went away. And what seemed like the worst thing that could possibly ever happen turned out to be the greatest thing that could happen. Now, during his earthly ministry, he was limited and where he was at any given time. He had to go from one place to another. You might remember uh, they, Martha and Mary sent to him and said, the one that you love is sick. He waited three days, and then he went down there, and Lazarus is dead. Yeah. Well, today, you know, that's what he walked, walked where he went. That was the method of transportation today. He hears all the prayers of his saints, wherever they happen to be, whenever they happen to call upon him. He promised to be with us always, 
and he is. And just a last illustration or application, I should say, that I would make here is the ascension of Christ teaches us a truth that's very much like the first one I mentioned, and it's that we should hold this present world with a loose hand. Hold this present world with a loose hand. And as I said, I have had the privilege of being with dying saints and seeing them go into the presence of God. And it really puts things in perspective, puts it in perspective for them, and it puts it in perspective for all that are there in the room and for myself. And you realize what's really important. And you realize what really matters. And you really get a sense of the truth of the scripture that we brought nothing into this world and we can certainly take nothing out of it. But what a wonderful thing it is when a Christian dies and goes to be in the presence of the Lord. We should hold this present world with a loose hand, you know. Some people, they live their entire life for just this life. It's even a doctrine that's taught. You know the famous guy that says, your best life now? You want your best life now? (laughs) This as good as it's going to get? You know, no. Prosperity gospel, it's false. Our best life is yet to come. And um, we don't live just for this life. Now, let me balance that by saying this, because um, you can and you should plan for the future, of course. Uh, maybe even for a day of retirement, if you're able to do such a thing. I heard um, uh, David Dykstra give an excellent um, excellent uh, exhortation to some of our IRBS students. Some of you guys were there when he did it and um, told you how important it would be to, to be cautious and plan ahead and don't be foolish while you're young. It'll come back to bite you when you're older. It's very true. Very true. You know, but we don't live our life for retirement. And we don't live our life really even for the future. It's, it's very possible we won't even have tomorrow. We, we've lost some of our own number recently. So we know that can be the case. It's possible you'll never make it to that day. So God's honored by wise planning, but we have no idea what the future holds for any of us. In fact, Christ himself was taken from this world at about age 33. Cut down, you could say, in the prime of life. Our goal should not necessarily be a long life, but a fruitful one. Live to the glory of God. And it doesn't even matter. I I think of a a dear saint in our church that that some of you know, and some of you were in his home, John Watson, a, a tremendous Englishman Christian that was in our church. It was it was humbling to preach to such a godly man as John Watson, who finally died at age 94 and was faithful to the very end, you know. But when you come right down to it, his time was short. His time, 94 years, but in the grand scheme of things, it was short. But forever he and we will be with the Lord. Our times are in his hand. And will not live one moment longer or die one moment sooner than he himself has ordained. And let me just conclude by saying this. 
He went to heaven. But remember this. He didn't go to heaven just for himself. But he went there for us. He was already with the Father from eternity past. He came here and he went there for us. And he is in heaven, our federal head. And he's the federal head of all the elect. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the ascension. And we see it as your great exaltation. And Lord, help us to live in the light of eternity. Help us to ever look to you. Help us to be faithful. Lord, if you were to leave us for a moment, we could not stand. But Lord, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you have done for us. Encourage our hearts. Keep us ever looking to Christ. Let it never, Father, let us be trusting in ourselves. And if we do trust in ourselves, Father, may you correct us quickly and put us back on the right path, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we would give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.